Heavenly Father, we pray now that your Holy Spirit, who first breathed out these holy, infallible, inerrant words, would be breathed out on us, that we might rightly hear and understand this, your word, have it grow in our hearts and applied to our lives for the sake of our edification and the upbuilding of your church. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. We are taking a break from our sermon series through Romans uh, to celebrate this day, Pentecost. And so our scripture reading comes to us from Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is our head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Today is Pentecost the day on which we remember the sending of the promised paraclete, the comforter, the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, who is fully God with the Father and the Son. Uh, Typically, 
Acts 2 is read on this day, which gives us the account of the first Pentecost. It recalls for us how Jerusalem was filled with Jews from all over who were gathering for the Feast of Weeks, which is an agricultural festival to celebrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And we know the story, right? Jesus' disciples were gathered in waiting just as Jesus had instructed them to do before his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. When all of a sudden there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were given the gift of tongues to go and share the gospel message in the native languages of all who had come to Jerusalem for the celebration. And Peter gets up and preaches and people are struck to their hearts. And the Bible tells us that thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ that day. Now, as we remember Pentecost this day, our focus could be on, as is custom, the general gift of the promised Holy Spirit or the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings. But I want us to look at Pentecost from a little different perspective today. One aspect of Pentecost that might be commonly overlooked is that Pentecost is the reversal of Genesis 11. There had been a time when people shared a common language, but in their pride and arrogance, in their sin, they used this unifying feature for evil. They attempted to build a tower up to the heavens to make a name for themselves. What we have in Acts 2 is in many ways an undoing of Babel. Rather than people building a tower up to God, God has come down to them. Rather than God confusing communication by causing many languages to spring up among the people, God has provided a gift to his people that allows them to once again communicate. And for what? In order that God's kingdom might be demonstrated and built on earth. And that is, people might be gathered from the ends of the earth into one family once again. And so while it's easy on Pentecost to get caught up in the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings, especially those gifts that seem to be more remarkable or spectacular, like speaking in tongues, I want us to direct our attention to some far more fundamental aspects of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives to which Pentecost points us. I believe that Ephesians 4 has much to teach us in this regard. A little context first. If you know the overall structure of Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus, then you know a little about the context of this passage in Ephesians 4. In the first few chapters of Ephesians, Paul's been laying out what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's been unfolding the eternal purpose of God, which is being worked out in history. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, sinners have been reconciled. Those who were far off have been brought near. A new society is being built. A fractured humanity is being united and shaped into one family. And now... As John Stott says so well of Ephesians 4, Paul moves from exposition to exhortation. From what God has done in the indicative to what we must be and do in the imperative. From doctrine to duty. From mind-stretching theology to -to down-to-earth concrete 
implications in everyday living. And so we find here that Paul's exposition of God's saving work in Jesus Christ has led us to this. An encouragement to spend all our time in private prayer and study, thinking about our personal relationship with Jesus? No. It leads us to an exhortation that encourages unity among God's family, the body of believers, the church. And this makes a great deal of sense if we think about it for a moment from the perspective of the Spirit's role in believers' lives post-Pentecost. The Spirit is a person of the Trinity who applies the saving work of Jesus Christ to our lives. It's a Spirit who opens our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear the gospel message, to understand it, to receive it. It's a Spirit who regenerates us, who brings our dead hearts to life, who gives us hearts of flesh, causes us to be born again. It's a spirit who convicts us of sin, leads us to repentance, and washes us clean of our sins. It's a spirit who gives us faith to place our trust in the atoning work of Jesus. It's the power, it is by the power of the spirit that we are baptized and made children of God, allowing us to call out to God and to know him as our heavenly father. It's the spirit who engrafts us into Jesus Christ and brings us into filial relationship with with God the Father through him. It's the Spirit who, in bringing us into union with Christ, simultaneously brings us together as the one body of Christ. The Spirit is the tie that binds. The Spirit binds the work of Christ to us and us to Christ. It's the Spirit who, through Christ, binds us to the Godhead. We are brought to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. By the Spirit, we enjoy relationship with God. Then it is also the Spirit who, having bound us to Christ, binds us to one another in Christ. Are you with me? Are you with me? No nodding heads. (laughs) We've seen it in Romans 8, right? For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. We see it earlier in Ephesians in chapter 2 where Paul reminds us that we were once far, far off aliens and strangers to the covenant. But by the blood of Christ who is our peace, the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down. That he might create in himself one man out of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We could look at many more passages that tell us that the spirit is a tie who binds us to God and who binds us to one another. 
This is why we've seen this progression in Romans from an exposition of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to an exhortation to live as one body in Christ. And it's why we see it here in Ephesians as well. So today, as we celebrate Pentecost and think deeply on the work of the Holy Spirit, considering what it is the Holy Spirit does in our lives, we can answer. He is binding us to Christ and simultaneously binding us to one another. So let us look now at some of the things that Paul says here in Ephesians 4. I want to first look at verses 4 through 6. He tells us this truth that we have just touched on, that our unity in the body of Christ arises out of our unity in God. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one body because we all share the same spirit who is indwelling us and animating us to new life. And it's the one spirit who serves to create unity and cohesion out of the diversity that is the people of God. And Paul has told us earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 that this promised Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the one spirit gives us hope to trust in the promises of the gospel. This is our common hope that we all set our eyes on and strive toward. We're all moving as one body in the same direction. Paul continues, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have one object of faith, Jesus Christ. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we're saved. And it's into Christ Jesus that we are baptized. We're baptized into his death that we might also share in his resurrection. Paul continues, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Because we are all brought into one family by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, we all share one father. Now, do you see what Paul has done here? He hasn't simply told us that our unity as a body arises out of our unity in God. He has integrated the unity of the church, the one family of God, with the unity of the Godhead. This means that the Spirit creates relationships below among us just as it is above with God. Are you following me? The implication of this is that Just as the unity of the Godhead is indestructible, so too is the unity of the church. Wait a second. But at the same time, Paul has given us a paradox. There can be disunity in the church. Go back to the first verses, the first few verses of chapter 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul gives us a list of attributes that he describes in other places as fruits of the Holy Spirit. He gives us here what he describes elsewhere as what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. And he exhorts us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. To be eager. Eager. One commentator says this. It is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb, to be eager. 
Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. The imperative mood of the participle found in the Greek text excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude, or a diligence tempered by deliberate speed. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You do it. I mean it. Such are the overtones in verse 3. I've been thinking a lot about these past few weeks about our eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit is the tie that binds us together in our union in Jesus Christ. It's by the Spirit that we are able to live among one another in love. And Paul will list the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 4, which, by the way, Paul roots in the ascension of Jesus in verses 8 through 10 here in Ephesians 4. Jesus, before ascending to heaven, tells his disciples it will be to their advantage if he goes away because he will send them another helper. And this helper comes and with him brings gifts for his people. And those gifts are given why? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Are you with me? Do you see where I'm going with all of this? Let me state it simply. I've already said it. Let me say it again. Everything the Spirit does in our everyday lives is about binding us to Christ and binding us to one another. Think about it. Paul tells us not only here but in other places that the purpose of the gifts is is for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. The fruits of the Spirit. They aren't just about living in a way pleasing to God. They're about living in relationship to one another in a way that demonstrates that we are God's family. The Spirit brings us into relationship and keeps us in relationship. And as I mentioned last week, look at the passage that immediately follows a passage of Pentecost in Acts 2. It's a passage describing how the believers are living together as a family. This is the result of receiving the Spirit. They're even sharing goods with one another. Why? Because I don't look at my wife and children and say, that's my couch, don't sit there. That's my bread, don't eat that. Well, sometimes, okay, we get greedy about food. (laughs) Anyhow, the Spirit is powerfully at work bringing us into relationship with God and one another. And yet, Paul calls us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We aren't just led by the Spirit, which is a passive response, as Paul instructs us in Galatians 5. In that very same passage, Paul also tells us to walk by the Spirit. It's an active response. It requires active obedience. It requires us to do something, even as we submit ourselves to the Spirit's guidance and work. And so as participants in the Spirit's work of bringing the body of Christ together in relationship with one another, we are able, mysteriously, as Paul will say later in chapter 4 of Ephesians, to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We're able to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And in what context does he say this? The context of our relationships with one another. 
in the context of how we care for one another, how we speak to one another. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? When we fail to maintain unity in the body, when we fail to live together as family. You parents might relate to this. As a father, there is very little little that grieves me more than to watch my family be in disunity. It hurts to see my children fight with one another, to say to one another, I don't want to play with you anymore. Leave me alone. It's a terrible feeling to see from time to time my children intentionally hurt one another or even unintentionally hurt one another, but refuse to apologize and to forgive each other. Ever had your child say to you, I wish I didn't have a sister, a brother? It's heartbreaking. The same thing applies to God's family. The Spirit is working to bring us together. And in our sinfulness of fallen humanity, we unfortunately are sometimes indifferent to the reality of our unity. And sometimes, at worst, we seek to destroy it. So I want to come back to a question I asked last week. What keeps us from treating each other as family, from greeting one another, from welcoming one another, from loving one another? In what ways are we being apathetic or even unwilling to maintain the unity in the spirit? I want to encourage you in the days to come to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of ways you personally or we as a body might be failing at this. I also want to suggest a few ways this morning, not an exhaustive list, but a few ways that I think we might find ourselves failing at this, at least in our context. I mentioned one last week, our selfishness and pride keep us from Christian community. The first attribute Paul mentions in Ephesians 4 in relation to walking in a worthy manner is humility. It's thinking of others better than yourselves. It's considering the good of others above your own. Certainly the spirit is grieved when we enter into Christian community only considering ourselves and how we can be blessed rather than with the intention of forming relationships with other Christians that God might be glorified and that there might be a mutual upbuilding of the body. But there is another way. There's another way. A lack of humility creates issues in Christian community. Failing to come into community humbly prevents our submission to one another, that we might hold each other accountable. This is a pretty scary thing, though, isn't it? It's okay for people to know a little about us, but we don't really want people to know the real messiness of our lives. We want to share our victories and joys with each other, but we aren't always very excited to share our struggles. We're scared of what people might think about us if they found out that we wrestled with anxiety, if they knew we had an addiction, if they learned that we weren't as together as we present ourselves. What would they think if they knew about our secret sins, about our pride, our lust, our greed, our sloth? Who would they tell? How would they treat us? This might be the reason all of us are okay with a system of church discipline in theory, but are really uncomfortable with it in practice. Our pride is whispering to us, I don't want anyone to know about my sin. And who are you to call me out, to judge me? 
What we fail to often realize is that our pride keeps us from one another. Our stories aren't shared. Our struggles aren't shared. We never truly get to know one another, only on a sort of superficial level, and our sin remains hidden. It's never brought into the light to be dispersed. It's never confessed that it might be healed, as James says. I remind you that it is the work of the Spirit to sanctify. And how does the Spirit go about this work? Iron sharpens iron. More often than not, sanctification happens in the context of community. God wants us to come into community openly and honestly. This is one of the reasons why Paul tells us to bear with one another. We don't have to bear with one another if we don't live life together in the messiness of our sins. Paul indicates to us in this passage that we are to grow up together. That in speaking the truth in love to one another, we spur each other on towards Christ who is our head. Unity requires humility and humility requires honesty. Coming into a Christian community selfishly or pridefully will hinder unity and grieve the spirit. But our fears about relationships formed in Christian communities stretch beyond people truly coming to know us. We might fear that if someone really knew us, they might reject us. But we might also have previously been deeply wounded by those with whom we had intimate relationships. It might be that we have been in a faith community before and we gave ourselves entirely to it and we feel that our trust was violated. If this is you, I get the hesitation. I do. I came out of a denomination in which I took vows that I took seriously, but apparently others didn't. And I was accused of breaking fellowship. And I feel like it wasn't me who broke fellowship. I didn't leave. I was left. It is hard after that sort of experience to enter into another faith community and commit yourself to it. There will be trust issues. I get it. But I want to challenge you this day. Thinking that you can stay on the fringes of a Christian community and receive the benefits of that community without really ever covenanting with that community and investing yourself into that community in order that you can avoid being hurt simply does not work, nor is it biblical. When it comes to the body of Christ, there is no sort of body sort of part of the body of Christ. You are either in the community or you are not. And what you are saying in practice is that you want fellowship, but you don't want accountability. That you want to share in worship, but you don't want to share in responsibility. Paul tells us to be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit, not to maintain our distance. I urge you, Do not allow your fear to cause you to grieve the spirit. Community is messy. There will be times when we hurt each other, but this is part of the glory of Pentecost. We have received the spirit as our guide and helper. We have one who is binding us together, who is bigger than our sins. Amen? We should together desire and submit ourselves to the spirit and his leadership. I want to mention one more hindrance to relationship building in the unity of the church. Can I meddle a little bit? Y'all okay with that? 
You want to know what keeps us from greeting each other, from welcoming each other, from loving each other, from growing up together into Christ Jesus, our head? Our busyness. Our busyness. We are so busy. We have commitments to work. We have social commitments. We have commitments to friends. We have family commitments. Our children have commitments. Oh, my, do our children have commitments. We have commitments to take breaks from commitments. We have commitments to commitments because we are committed to being committed ourselves to commitments. It's a sermon unto itself. But can we just be honest for a moment? Our busyness is insane. It is insane. It is. It's out of hand. And as much as we might wish, busyness is not on the list of spiritual gifts. Busyness is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Busyness is not given by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is a spirit of peace. In fact, Paul tells us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How? In the bond of peace. Peace is the glue to our unity. It is the ligament that holds bone to muscle. But how can we be at peace with one another when we aren't even at peace with ourselves? How can we be at peace with one another when we don't have time for one another? Dearly beloved, busyness is the devil. It is of the devil. Busyness is given by the one who wishes to distract and divide and disorder. It is one of the subtlest lies because it presents itself as being noble. It's good to have things to do, right? But when we spend our lives in a rush from one thing to the next, how can we possibly spend quality time with one another? When we do spend time together, it's in a state of exhaustion. We are too distracted to actually love each other. Can we stand back for a moment and think about our busyness? How do we get so busy? Who's making our schedules? Are we in charge or are we allowing the world to dictate to us what is important? Perhaps, perhaps... We have failed to discern between the urgent and the important. Dwight D. Eisenhower lived by this principle. Quote, what is important is seldom urgent. And what is urgent is seldom important. What is important is seldom urgent. And what is urgent is seldom important. We have all of these forces shouting at us to give them our attention. You have to do this. You have to do this now. These things need your immediate attention. The problem is that these things are rarely actually important. They don't usually, if we stop and think about it, fit into a long-term mission or purpose or meaning of our life. They just keep us well distracted. So perhaps if we are busy, we have failed to set priorities appropriately let's not be mistaken though we are we are making time for things and what we are making time for in our overfilled schedules reveals a great deal about what we find to be the priorities of our lives so let me ask you does your schedule reveal that you are making a priority out of being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. 
does your commitment to the church fall somewhere along the lines of, well, your leftover time, if there is any? It is our priority. It should be our priority to build the relationships that Christ died to provide us. It could be that we fail at setting proper priorities because we found our identity in the wrong things. Maybe it's making a name for ourselves professionally or appearing to be a good citizen or having good social status or being wealthy. And so we commit ourselves to work and civic organizations and making every happening event that comes along or making money any way we can. Whether we aren't sure, perhaps we aren't sure where our identity is. So we commit ourselves to everything. Perhaps you find your identity in your busyness. It gives you your self-worth to be so needed, so desired, so in demand. Dearly beloved, here is the good news. If you have received the Holy Spirit, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've been engrafted into Jesus Christ, not because of anything you've done, but because of what he has done for you. Your identity is in him. As Christians, you've been freed from needing to earn a name, a status, a value, money. We've been freely given it all by grace, and it is far better than what the world offers. And in response to this grace, our commitment is to Christ and his people above all things. Now, I, I don't want you to misunderstanding, misunderstand what I'm saying. There is a difference between having a full schedule and being busy. We can be scheduled and not busy, not in a rush. My mentor in seminary had almost uh, died of cancer a few years before I entered graduate school. And he used to tell me all the time, if he said it one time, he said it a thousand times, in his deep Scottish accent, Jonathan, I don't do busy. Okay. It's taken me a long time to understand what he meant. Because when I looked at his schedule, it seemed full. Not frantically full, but full enough. And as I watched him in my three years in seminary, though, I watched him turn down numerous opportunities. Good opportunities, opportunities to advance his career, opportunities to make a name for himself, opportunities to make more money, opportunities to rub shoulders with very important people. He didn't bite. He never, never missed an opportunity, however, to build relationships among his brothers and sisters in Christ. His door was always open. He made time for relationships in his local community. He stopped doing so many urgent things and made time for the important. Don't confuse the two. He learned to number his days aright. Dearly beloved, it's time to stop being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. This is the doctrine of the world that only those who are busy are important, are valuable, are worthy. No, don't sacrifice spending time with God and your family of faith to do urgent things. The world tries to deceive you as being important. Dearly beloved, our busyness is killing our unity and is grieving the spirit. So let me ask you, are you eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit? 
The Spirit has bound us to Christ and has bound us to one another. How are you committing yourself to the God who has committed himself to you? And how are you committing yourself to the people of God who are the bride of Christ bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Are you allowing pride or fear or busyness or something else to get in the way? Last week, I encouraged you to make it a point in the next month to get to know three people in the congregation who you don't currently know. I want to encourage you to do something else this morning. I want you to pray about, think about, find three ways over the next month to commit yourself more fully to maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And may it all be to the glory of God and for the upbuilding of his church. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might grant that we would each be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That, you, that we would recognize this precious gift that you have given us, Lord, and that we wouldn't neglect meeting together, sharing our stories together, caring for one another, loving together, worshiping you in one voice, serving you with one heart. Help us to discern ways in which we can make time for one another, to set that as a priority above all other priorities that we might spur each other on in love and good deeds, that we might grow up into Christ Jesus, who is our head, to the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life ever.